Well, good morning, Bethel. I've been gone for three weeks. I feel the need to introduce myself. My name is Eric. I'm your pastor, you know. I, I'm sorry I've been gone so long. I took two weeks off because I got jury duty for the month, and I thought, I don't know how I'm going to get ready for Sunday, not knowing if i am got to go in each day or whatever. And then at the end of that, I ended up getting sick, and I thought, this is going to go over really well. I'm going to call in after two weeks vacation and say, I'm sick. I'm going to be staying home. And, um, you know, unfortunately, that actually turned to pneumonia, as I know many of you know, so I've been kind of dealing with that and trying to recover. And I just want to uh, ask, I guess, two things, tell you that for two reasons. One, I appreciate so much uh, Pastor Mark and Pastor Adam covering for me in the pulpit, and I can't tell you what reassurance it is to um, have confidence in your team and in your staff and what they're going to be preaching and proclaiming while you're gone. And so that was... Um, wonderful. So I thank uh, Adam and Mark for that, and Sharina too, just holding down the fort and keeping things off my schedule and protecting me. So um, thank you to those folks, and I would ask for your continued prayers. I'm still recovering. I thought I was better off than I am. I started preaching first service, and I was out of breath. I thought, come on, this is what I do. I don't know. How can I not have air for this? So um, anyways, we're going we're gonna to pray. I go to the word of the Lord this morning, so please pray with me. Our Father, I ask that the Word of God, which is living and active, would penetrate now to our hearts. The Word which is able to divide joints and marrow, soul and spirit. Uh, Teach us, Lord, what you would have us learn. Not so that we would just know the text, but that we would know the God of the text and that we would love you. So speak powerfully to us because of your strength, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I want to ask you, what was your rhetorical question? What was your favorite sermon that you've ever heard? And hopefully it wasn't in the last two or three weeks because I wasn't here. That (laughs) hurt my feelings just a little bit. Best sermon you ever heard. Uh, Some of you may be inclined to think, well, I don't know what it was about, but whatever the shortest sermon I ever heard, that was the best sermon I ever heard. Maybe that's your MO. Um, but maybe you've had a chance to hear you know, a national speaker, someone that God has really gifted with uh, the ability to teach and preach, and their message was just clear and piercing and inspiring. Uh, maybe you've got one of those messages on a, a CD or even an old cassette tape or an audio file of some kind that you go back to and you, you listen to occasionally because of uh, its value to your spiritual life. Um, I, I don't know about just a single message, but one of the preachers I have appreciated over the years, probably more than others, for me has been Chuck Swindoll. Um, I just loved listening to Chuck. He is sometimes known as the pastor's pastor. And, um, you know, whatever he says sounds authoritative just by the quality of his voice, right? It's like listening to James Earl Jones preach or something. Uh, but I, I can remember, I mean, Chuck was the guy on the radio when I was a kid. I remember listening to his messages. People would pass them around. His church in Fullerton was just about 10 miles down the road from Biola, uh, where I attended um, for my undergraduate. He was gone at that time, but his influence was still there. And I can still remember specific lines that Chuck Swindoll has said in his preaching. I can even remember the intonation that he used when he said it. Just piercing truths, clear truths at key times in life. And so I've, I've benefited from his ministry. 
There's one right now that I, it's, he delivered it a number of years ago at a pastor's conference. The title is Boars in God's Vineyard. Boars, B-O-A-R, Boars in God's Vineyard. And it was delivered to be an encouragement to pastors in times of messiness and ministry. That's been an encouragement to me. But this morning we have the privilege of looking at what is arguably the best sermon ever. That's a big statement, right? I'm not saying my sermon, I'm saying the sermon we're looking at, the best sermon ever, and that is the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, And in your Bibles, it covers Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. And I I want you to know that because I want you to see those chapters, not as individual chapters of random information, but as a single cohesive sermon preached by Jesus on one occasion. That all fits together. There is an introduction, a thesis, arguments, and final illustrations. There's a whole flow to this thing. It's a masterful message, as you would expect from Jesus, smartest man to ever live, best teacher to ever live. Within this sermon, we find the Beatitudes, we find the Lord's Prayer, we find the Golden Rule, we find his teachings about love, and we find the very familiar and comforting passage about, therefore, do not worry. All of that contained within one sermon that could have been preached in about 15 minutes. So you guys aren't so lucky to get such a packed sermon in such a short amount of time. But that's what he was able to do. It's almost hard to believe that all of it's in this one message. But what I want you to think about too is, in this sermon particularly, the Sermon on the Mount, we find what we, would, what we might call the essential teachings of Jesus. That is, what was really near and dear to his heart, what he was passionate about, what he wanted us to hear, we find right there. In other words, if we call ourselves Christians, and by that I don't just mean those who are saved, we are that if we've placed our faith in Christ, but not just Christians by way of being saved, but if we call ourselves Christians and mean by that that we're followers of Christ, imitators of his, students, disciples, apprentices of Jesus, those who are learning of him, then we really should be well-versed in his primary and essential teachings. In other words, if someone were to stop you on the street and say, hey, I hear you're a Christian, can you tell me about Jesus' teachings? What would you have to say? Could you identify what some of his core teachings were? And could you talk about and demonstrate how it is that you're organizing your life around what he has taught? Or do we just mean, I'm Christian, I'm saved? To declare oneself to be a Christian is, yes, to be saved, but it is also to be a follower and a disciple of Jesus Christ. And if that's the case, then we, I think, ought to have a regular and steady diet of especially his teachings. And I think um, there's a real opportunity to see that within the Gospel of Matthew, as I'll show you in just a second here. There's a great quote by John Stott that I have in your handout, if you want to take that out. He has said this about the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the most complete delineation anywhere in the New Testament of the Christian counterculture. Here is a Christian value system, ethical standard, religious devotion, attitude to money, ambition, lifestyle, and network of relationships, all of which are at variance with those of the non-Christian world. And this Christian counterculture 
is the life of the kingdom of God. So again, if we're going to be followers of Jesus, we should know his key teachings, and this is a place that we find them, and I believe we should be regularly coming back to them in our devotional life um, as something that we tether our spiritual lives around. Now, up to this point in Matthew, we need to, we need to do some context work. Pastor Mark reiterated that while I was gone. I appreciated that. Uh, the context here, the book of Matthew, the first four chapters has largely been Matthew presenting Jesus and his credentials to be King Jesus, to be the Messiah, the anointed one that was proclaimed to come. So that's really what we find in the first four chapters. Now from chapter 5 on to the end of the book, what we find really is uh, five sermons of Jesus. And that's how the book is organized. So he sets him up to be the king, and now we're going to see what the king has to say about his kingdom. Now there's some, uh, there's some other material that's kind of sprinkled in between, some narrative material sprinkled in between these sermons, but largely we find four, or excuse me, five sermons of Jesus in the rest of uh, Matthew's gospel. And that's one of its principal um, contributions to the scriptures as a whole, is we find so much of what Jesus taught here in Matthew. Now there's an important preface that I have to give you before we get on with his teachings here. Um, and, and that is this, right in between chapters 4 and 25, kind of in this scene, we find a crucial invitation that Jesus extends to those who are hearing his teachings. And the invitation is this, repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Metanoia is the Greek word. It means to change one's mind. You are walking this way, you're going to change and you're going to go this way. It's a 180 degree turnaround, metanoia, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And Pastor Adam covered this really beautifully two weeks ago. But it's critical to understand um, that Jesus taught repentance is the first step of one's spiritual life. Repentance is the first step of one's spiritual life. In other words, we can't just come to the teachings of Jesus here And skip that first step and go, well, this is great. I want to be a disciple. I want to be a follower of Jesus. So I'm just going to hear his teachings and just get on with those. His first teaching is the critical teaching. We start with repentance. One's spiritual life begins with repentance. No one begins a relationship with God who does not start with repentance. The default condition of mankind is that we're all sinners. And that's what we have to repent of. And we have to turn to Christ in faith. And so, when one does that, when we repent of sin, when we profess faith in Christ, we at that point enter into the kingdom of God. So as Jesus begins his teachings here about the kingdom of God, we have to make sure that we have crossed through the doorway that has been provided, repentance and faith. Um, So we want to make sure that we start there. Now, I want you to notice this too. One of the, um, the primary audience for Jesus' teachings here is actually the disciples. If you look in chapter 5, verse 1, we see here, it says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Now this is interesting, actually, if we stop here, because we don't really know, if I were to ask you, why did he go on to, up to the top of the mountain? Or why did he go on the mountainside? Was he trying to get away from the crowds? Or was he trying to get a vantage point to teach? 
There's different opinions on that. Not really sure. But he does seem to ascend the mountain. His disciples come to him as we see. His disciples come to him and he began to teach them. But we see that his disciples there are the primary audience. That's who he's, that's who's first and foremost uh, in proximity to him and who he's teaching. The other thing that is important here though too is if we go to the end of the sermon, which is chapter 7 verse 28, if you want to turn there, we see the crowd's response to his teachings. The crowds, it says that the crowd was amazed because he taught as one who had authority, not like their scribes and Pharisees, right? So in other words, while the disciples were his principal audience, the crowds also heard his message. So it's not just a either or, it's a little bit of a, of a both and. But it's important to understand that the disciples who had already responded to him in repentance were his primary audience hearing about what it is to live life in the kingdom of God, okay? Now, <clears throat> While this might be the best sermon ever preached, I've got two teacups from first service here and this one over here. All right. I'm a little conf- I've got some serious issues going on. While this is the best sermon ever preached, that hasn't protected it from being misunderstood. And I think the Beatitudes, especially, are so misunderstood. Uh, we find that the, they really are the introduction to his sermon. So I want to show that to you. If you would take your hand out, flip it over, and look at the back. I want to provide for you an outline for Jesus' sermon. In other words, if he gave out a half sheet of paper on the mountainside with fill in the blanks, it might have looked something like this. <clears throat> and what we find at the beginning is his introduction. We find the Beatitudes, and then we find him talking about what it is to be salt and light. Then he provides what is kind of his thesis or his central truth, the power punch of his message, which is a really provocative statement right there in verses 17 through 20, where he basically tells the crowd, your righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And to the crowd, that was a shocking statement because the scribes and the Pharisees were not, not only keepers of the law, but they were those who had added laws to laws. And so the crowd is thinking, how could we possibly not only match them, but supersede their righteousness? And so it's a provocative statement that he makes. And I'll have to show you. You have to come back next week for that one. But that's kind of his thesis there. And then he demonstrates it. And then he concludes really with three uh, illustrations of how somebody might respond to his message. So again, I want you to see this as a whole message. And we're just going to start with the introduction um, this morning. So the part that we're looking at is commonly known as the Beatitudes. And um, I want you to know too, this title, the Beatitudes, uh, is provided in most of your texts in your Bible. How many of you in your Bible, it says right above this, the Beatitudes? Can I see some hands? Okay, almost everybody. Some of you can't get your hand up right now because I'm confident that it's there. <clears throat> now, you know that these titles in your Bible are not Scripture. That's not inspired Word of God. Those are editor's notes to be helpful aids to you as you read. In this case, I don't think the title is helpful. I think it's misleading. The title Beatitudes comes from the Latin meaning blesseds. In other words, what follows here is a list of Blesseds. The problem is, I think, well-intentioned readers of the word, and you may have either inferred this or you may have actually been taught this by somebody, we hear the word or see the word beatitude and we think these are attitudes 
that I am to be. Have you has anybody, ever, anybody ever taught that to you before? You've heard that. These are the be attitudes. Go and be and do these things. And I want to tell you, if that's what you've heard, or that's what you've inferred, that that's wrong. That that's not what Jesus is doing here. Now, some of these are just perfectly fine virtues. But his point is not to provide for us the new list of things that we're to go and do. So if there was to be, if I would like to speak to all Bible editors out there as if they cared what I had to say or even knew I was alive, rather than this misleading title, what we should call, this is what I've titled the message this morning, the Begladitudes, which isn't actually a word, but you know. But that's a lot more consistent with the message that follows. What we find, and this is what I want you to hear loud and clear, is that overall, the message that Jesus is giving, particularly in the Beatitudes here, is not a new list of go and do. It is a list, basically, or it's a message of comfort and consolation for the circumstances that people find themselves in, in contrast to the kingdom of God. And then at the very end, he calls them to a couple of things, salt and light. But the Beatitudes are a message of comfort and consolation for, for an array of circumstances that you might find yourselves in. So now let's read it with that in mind. Chapter 5, 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, <coughs> he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice. Be glad. There it is. Because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right, let's ask the question. What does the word blessed mean anyways? When it says that we're blessed. It means literally happy, but not just a fleeting, transitory, sub, you know, subjective experience of happy, happiness that comes and goes. A happiness that means more one who is really well off. Not just not financially, but really well off. This is the person who in reality is doing well. They're to be envied. Uh, that's what is meant here. And so again, Jesus is offering this message of comfort and consolation for all of the people in front of him who find themselves in an array of different circumstances here. And it's, it's, what's critical to understand is that it is, this is not a list of dispositions that we are to therefore go and emulate. Um, at least that's not Jesus' point here. Uh, while many of them are good virtues, the, the point is that is Jesus is not just giving us a new list of things to do. We tend to emphasize the list of, you know, those who are poor in spirit or those who mourn or those who are meek or those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we think, well, we have to go and therefore do these things. 
We tend to put the emphasis on the condition. Jesus is putting the emphasis on the kingdom, on the other side of the formula. It's so funny because our default position really is we go back to legalism again and again and again. As though we have to do these things to gain entrance into the kingdom of God. I think (coughs) what we find here, this list of conditions, I'll call them. There's about nine that are given depending on how you count them. I don't think this is exhaustive. I mean, I think on one hand, Jesus could say here and say, Blessed are those of you whose car didn't start this morning. One day you're not going to need a ride. Blessed are those of you who are financially strapped. One day you're not going to need any currency. You see what he's doing? It's just a list of conditions that people find themselves in. And he's contrasting that with the reality of the kingdom of God that has been inaugurated and will one day be consummated. That's the point here. And so the message overall is this. Be encouraged. You're in the kingdom. If you have responded with repentance and with faith and have become a disciple of Jesus as he has near to him, rejoice, be glad. You're in the kingdom of God. Be encouraged. The contrast of that reality against your present condition, that's what he's trying to show. That's sort of the shock and awe that he is He is uh, producing here. Lift your eyes out of your present and fleeting reality and be encouraged by what's really real. You're in the kingdom of God. So again, Jesus is preaching a message of consolation. And he's preaching it regardless of the circumstances that you're in. You can rejoice. Um, (coughs) Now what I want to do, I'm going to pick a couple of these and kind of flesh them out a little bit. Uh, if, as you see from the outline I provided you, this is, after all, Jesus' introduction to his sermon. And as any preacher or speaker does at the beginning of their message, they begin with some kind of attention-getting attempt, right? So this morning, I started with the question, what was your favorite sermon ever? And I got you thinking about that. Now, other ways we might do that are, is with a quotation or a question or a provocative statement. Jesus' introduction is a provocative statement. He begins with the words, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now we hear that phrase, and it's almost lost on us because of its familiarity. So let me rephrase its meaning a couple different ways so you can hear it freshly, okay? It would be like saying, Blessed are those of you who have a really shady past. Or, blessed are you who are morally bankrupt. Blessed are you who are the spiritual zeros. Blessed are you who are the religious knuckleheads. Okay? The the word that is used here for poor, there's a number of Greek words available to be used, but the word that is chosen here uh, is tokos. There's a silent P at the beginning of it, or a Subtle P at the beginning, like ptarmigan. Tokos. And it, and it means not just one who has little, or one who is behind, or struggling, or, you know, less than others. It means one who has absolutely nothing. Destitute. Without anything. One who is relying completely upon the grace of others, as a beggar does. Not that they have little. It's that they have Nothing. 
And so this is kind of the shocking statement that Jesus is making at the beginning of his sermon to grab their attention. The funny thing is, when you treat this as a list of go and do, or attributes to try to put on, you'll find so many preachers and teachers doing all these hermeneutical gymnastics to, you know, try to figure out how to tell people to be poor in spirit. Or how to make somehow mourning look good. Or how to somehow tell people it's okay to crave persecution. And it gets really distorted, and you can kind of see how hard people are trying to make an ill-fitting way of approaching this text fit. Again, the key to understanding the Beatitudes is this. It's not the condition that produces the blessing. The blessing of the kingdom is there and secure. And we're being shown this blessing in contrast or in spite of the condition. So again, we tend to look at, I got to go and do these things. Jesus is saying, this is your status. How blessed are you that this is your reality? In contrast to a moment where you are poor of spirit, where you are mourning, where you are the meek of the earth, where you are persecuted. These are fleeting in contrast to the secure reality of the kingdom of God. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. Let's take another one and look at it through. Blessed are the meek. Now, I think meekness is really misunderstood. And today, it's often seen as synonymous with weakness. Uh, And that's not the case. Uh, It's not only compatible with strength, but it almost requires that strength be present for meekness to be possible. Meekness is controlled power, restrained power. It's where one has the ability to do something but yet they don't trust in themselves, they trust in the Lord. Where they could assert or they could overpower, but they don't. They restrain their effort. It's one who lives below their means, not just financially, but by virtue of what all they could achieve in their own strength. It's restrained power. And so when Jesus is saying here, blessed are the meek, it's as, it's as though he is saying, those who don't press for every right and privilege in the here and now. One day, those who have did not try to grasp everything in their reach will have everything at their disposal. They'll inherit the whole earth and rule and reign with Christ. So blessed are the meek. If that's your posture now, chosen or otherwise, one day your inheritance is the whole earth because of your place in the kingdom of God. Now, sometimes the blessedness is shown of the kingdom in contrast to the present reality, and sometimes the blessedness of the kingdom is shown as the fulfillment of the present reality. So let me show you a different one. If you'll skip down to, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Okay, now, We're going to have a little bit of fun with this with some of you. Some of you are here this morning, and you are truth and justice people. We're not going to ask for a show of hands. (laughs) Some of you are showing hands by way of confession. (laughs) This is your general posture. 
uh, you tend to be those that have difficulty extending grace and mercy to other people because it's not what they deserve, which is really the whole point of grace and mercy. It's undeserved. Um, your own moral compass is pretty well pegged at, hey, do the right thing and, uh, or suffer the consequences. And if you do have consequences, you deserve them. So we're not going to rescue them, you from them. Uh, many of you are firstborns, okay? Um, <laughs> kind of comes with the territory. Uh, you are those that love to see things done right, the right way. It's to be done well, okay? And you can hardly stand it when something is done, but it's done poorly, That bothers you. It's even, in fact, it's almost worse. If something is done poorly, it would be better if it hadn't even been attempted. Done wrong is worse than not done at all. Because your your righteousness is, you know, confounded. Uh, You're the teeth grinders. You're the the sore shoulders, right? Uh, Lip biters. And you live with kind of this slow and steady fire of frustration that just won't ever get put out. Because the world's not right. And it seems to be getting increasingly wrong. And you're, you have this steady angst with you. A lot of elbows thrown around here. Um, but to you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus says one day you'll be able to relax. And exhale. And rest. And even rejoice. Because the righteousness of God most high will reign supremely everywhere. All things will be as they ought to be. And you'll see it and you'll rejoice. And you'll say, that's right. And that's good. And that's done well. And my heart is pleased. And I'm at rest. And that's how you'll feel when the Lord reigns on high. And so this longing for righteousness here is compared in the text to a hunger, right? And a thirst, this appetite, this, oh, it can't be satiated. I can't satisfy it. I can't quench it. I can't put it down. And Jesus says, for those of you who hunger and thirst for this and have this unquenchable appetite, that one day you will what? You'll be filled. You'll be full, satisfied, satiated, thirst quenched content, finally even rejoicing when the kingdom of God arrives in its power. This is the message of the Beatitudes. It's not another list of go and do and achieve. It's a comfort and a consolation of a reality that is here for us, that has begun in us as we have entered the kingdom of God and will one day be fully consummated. And all of that against our present conditions that are listed here. That's what we are to understand. Now the reason, I've got to move on to the next couple of sections here. The reason I include the next two sections of salt and light, which are very familiar passages, is because I think they're connected to this. You know, we're not told that somebody asks a question, but it seems to me that somebody has asked Jesus a question, or at least that he's anticipated it or knows what's on somebody's mind. And so it's, 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 it's as though somebody there has asked or is wondering, well, how then should we live in this place? 
How should we be in the here and now? What does it look like to be citizens of this kingdom of God, which has been inaugurated but is not fully consummated? How is it that I can dwell here on earth? Can we just maybe like hunker down and pull in into sanitized cloisters and just kind of wait for that happy day to arrive? Can we do that? And so it seems that whether this question was asked or just anticipated, Jesus answers something of that nature by saying, there is no such thing as a private Christian. Private Christianity mm-mm, doesn't exist. You can't just hold this wonderful truth as a personal secret or as a private matter of faith. It's a public reality. The idea is if you're blessed, you're in the kingdom of God. When it fully arrives... What is missing will be filled up. What has begun to be good in the here and now will be magnified and be great. But in the meantime, you are to live firmly planted in this place in a way that is influential to the world around you. There's this great old quote that I love. You've heard it before. I've probably used it many times. That there are some people who are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good, right? And then the converse. And there's some people who are so earthly minded that they're no heavenly good. And I really like that. These are two temptations for all of us. And of course, the truth here is that we're to be right in that uncomfortable middle. Heavenly minded and very good on earth for those who are not of that mindset yet. And that's where God has placed us. We are called to live the counter-cultural kingdom life in the here and now. And it's portrayed for us in two illustrations of salt and light. And so the second point here is this. Be engaged. You're the salt of the earth. You're the salt of the earth, it says in verse 13. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now, what we have to be careful to do here is to not read present day back onto the scriptures, but to make sure that we read the scriptures reality into our present day. And we so often flip this around. When you and I think of salt, we tend to think of flavor and food, right? Savor. I like, anybody else like salt? I like salt. My wife will sometimes buy the low sodium soup or the low sodium chips. I'm like, why bother? I want chips because I don't want something healthy. I like the salt. If you could buy high-fat, high-salt chips, that's what I want, right? But we tend to think of it as, a, as a, a flavor, right? But in the ancient world, that's not how it was used. In the ancient world, salt was primarily an agent of preservation. In an age of non-refrigeration, you have perishable goods. You would salt them to prevent its decay and its rotting. That's the illustration Jesus is drawing out of his own culture. You're to be agents of preservation in the world around you, which is rotting. He's not saying, hey, I've put you here so that you can spice things up on planet Earth. We have Portland, Oregon for that. We don't need, you know, that's not the role of Christians. (coughs) We're to be agents of preservation. Preserving what is good. Preventing the decay of a rotting world around us. That's the posture that God has sprinkled us in the world to be. And Jesus cautions us against losing our saltiness, losing that influence. And I think there's at least two, or I'll go through two ways that I think we lose our saltiness. One 
is that we're not present where we're needed. And what I mean by that is too many Christians want to retreat from the world that is into sanitized Christian ghettos where they're comfortable. It's a temptation for all of us. It's a temptation for me at times. And the reality is God has placed us in this world to be an influence upon this world because we love this world as he does and we desire their good and their flourishing. And so we have to be present and engaged in a sinful world. Uh, You will notice that we don't, as a church, have a calendar that is filled and loaded with activities. The reason is because we don't want to create a parallel existence from the world that is just completely stripped down and sanitized of everything, and we just live over here with our heads down until the kingdom comes. We can't do that. One of the reasons we don't do everything we could do is particularly to make sure that you're available to be engaged in the lives of those around you who don't know Jesus. This is an equipping church where you come here and we feed you with the word of God and train you and equip you to be our primary program in the world. That's what we're after. We're not a program-driven church. You're the program. We're investing in you. Reach your world for Christ. So that's one of the ways that is there a temptation for us to lose our saltiness is that we're not present, we're needed. I'll give you one more example of this. I'll really stick my head in the lion's mouth here. Why not? I've got pneumonia. You guys will be compassionate, right? <coughs> Maybe not the firstborn righteous folks, but the other folks will be. Um, uh, public schools. Now, our, our family has done public school, home school. I, I myself grew up in a Christian school. Uh, I'm not saying there's one right way to do it. I'm really not. really not saying that. But I am saying this. If your motivation for not sending your kids to public school is so that you can shelter them, then you may be failing them in one of two areas or both. Not preparing them for the world they're going to live in. And you may be robbing from the world one who has a relationship with Jesus who can be an influence. Now public school is just one of those kinds of things and there's a whole number of others. But if the Christians constantly retreat from the world that is because it's uncomfortable and because it's not safe, we will fail in the Great Commission. We have not been commissioned to hunker down and to bunker until the Lord returns. We've been commissioned to be ambassadors for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and to spread the gospel, which means we have to be present where that's needed. So that's one of the ways we lose our saltiness. We're not present. Another way we lose our saltiness is that we have no voice. We're present, but we don't say anything. We're in that uncomfortable place that doesn't know the Lord or rejoice or worship in Him. But we don't ever speak up. We remain quiet and passive, and we just go with the flow. and We don't resist. Um, we are called... There, to have a saltiness to us, that, to us, that is that we are to be truth speakers, which means that at times we have to express that contrary opinion or the contrary truth, and we have to insert it out there into the uncomfortable reality by way of resisting evil, resisting moral decay, resisting the rot of the world that is on. Because we love people, not just because we like being finger waggers, but because we really desire human flourishing, which comes by having a right relationship with Jesus. And so we 
in a salty way will say the thing that needs to be said. I'll give you three real quick pieces of advice on how to improve upon this. If, if, if the temptation for you specifically is that you don't always have a voice in that place, uh, here's three things you can do. Number one, memorize scripture. I'm not talking about great sections of scripture, though that's good for your heart and soul. Memorize some small, pithy statements that you know you're going to need that you can speak gently and persuasively in a moment's notice. A couple weeks ago, I was in the locker room and a friend of mine was complaining about the stress in his life and um, how frustrated and busy he was and whatever. And the Lord just brought to my attention a passage I had memorized a long time ago which says, better one handful with tranquility than two in chasing after the wind. And I shared that with him, gently, not, you know, not Bible thumping him, but just, you know, oh, you know what the scripture says? And he says, you're right. That's really true. That's really true. The scripture authenticated itself to him. Its truthfulness did. And so memorize some of those things that you can put in you and deliver gently and lovingly at a moment's notice. Secondly, get accustomed to saying, and this is almost the same thing, but get accustomed to saying, you know, the Bible says... We live in a world where everybody's got a soapbox, especially through Facebook and social media, to say whatever it is that they want. So we're, there's no shortage of opinions out there, but there is a shortage of authority. And when you can say, you know, the Bible says, people will still listen to that, and they'll hear it, and they'll take it because you're not personally saying, I got this on you. You're saying, you know, would you consider this? And let the Word of God do its work. And then thirdly, I think it's reasonable to say, and I find that this is not spoken very often, but you know, as a Christian, fill in the gap. Identify yourself as a follower of Jesus. I think these are three ways that we can keep our saltiness, keep our voice in the world where God has placed us. All right, thirdly, I got to close here. You can tell I haven't preached in three weeks. I got a lot to say. (laughs) Jesus was so concise. I don't know how he did that. Third point is this. Be beautiful. You're the light of the world. In other words, let me paraphrase it this way. If saltiness is sort of that contrary edge, that preserving edge, that point where we're willing to say that hard truth that doesn't always fit neatly into the context, but we're willing to gently say it for the benefit of those we're speaking to, if that's our saltiness, then the light is that compelling edge. It's that beautiful aspect of the community of faith. It's that beauty of the character of Christ being formed in us. It's Christian service, Christian community, Christian character. It's not ours, it's Christ in us, at work in us. It's beauty that draws people to Christ. You're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and speak well of you and tell everybody what a great person you are and your stock will go up in everybody's eyes, right? That they may glorify your Father in heaven. As Christ is evident in us, in our relationships, in our character, and the way we carry ourselves, people will not see you they will see the Lord in you. And that's what we want. If we're to be salty at times. We're to be beautiful at all times. So the message we find right in the beginning of Jesus' sermon here. He's telling us about life in the kingdom of God. Be encouraged. 
no matter what circumstance you find yourself when you walked in the door this morning, if you're in the kingdom of God, you're really well off. Be encouraged. Be salt. Be engaged in the world around you. You can't hunker down and go into cloister mode. You have a gospel to spread. And be beautiful light that draws people to our Lord and Savior who is changing us from the inside out. That's how Jesus starts his message. Let's pray. Father, how good is your truth. How great is our salvation. How sweet is our Savior. Forgive us for being so fixed upon other things. Draw our own eyes to the teachings of your Son. The reality of the kingdom, may we live it well, that people might see you. Humbling to think, Lord, that we may be the only Bible that people ever read. May they read us and not be turned away, but be turned towards Christ. We are grateful for the salvation that we find in you and in your work that is done. We are relieved that we do not need to perform, and it's not through achievement that we are righted. But by grace and mercy poured out, activated by repentance and faith, we find salvation, and it is sufficient, and it is good. We look forward to the consummation of your coming kingdom We say with the early church, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, we long for your return. May we be faithful in the meantime. In Christ's name we pray, amen.